Hello, and welcome to How Many Geese. He's Jack Badams. And he's Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a podcast about nature that doesn't take itself too seriously, then we are The Natural Selection. On today's episode, if you could swap your eyes with the eyes of any animal, what would you swap them with? If any sea animal is going to lead a mutiny against humankind, it's orca. Yeah, the deep fight's back. What it boils down to is how many smew can you block until one of them reaches your eyeball? We're going to join sailor David Smith on a late October evening as he sails a boat from France to Gibraltar to its new owner. He works as a guy who delivers yachts to their new owners, basically, generally in the Mediterranean. This podcast aside, that is a great job. It's a really good job, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you say that. All right, okay. Although what happens to him is quite cool, to be honest. So him and his crew are about 20 miles off Porto on the Portuguese coast when they are approached by what they initially think is a pod of dolphins. But it quickly becomes apparent as they get closer that they're much bigger than dolphins, a jet black and white. It's a pod of orca. Hmm. Now, the orca come close to the boat and they are checking it out before one of them dives underneath and there's a really loud thumping along the hull as the orca starts headbutting the boat. And then the rest start joining in, the rest of the pod. So this is a quote from David. I think there were six or seven animals, but it seemed like mostly the juvenile ones, the smaller ones, were the most active. They seemed to be going under for the rudder and the wheel would start spinning really fast every time there was an impact. And for some two hours, the group of killer whales attacked the underside of this 45-foot yacht. And they contacted the Coast Guard, who advised them to switch off the motor and take down the sails and just become as uninteresting as possible. And eventually, after two hours, the orcas just disappeared. But the interesting thing is that this isn't an isolated incident, because this is one of at least 40 similar incidents that has been occurring over the summer and into the autumn of 2020. In July, a sailing vessel had to be towed back to shore after a group of orcas repeatedly hit and damaged its rudder. In August, a French vessel radioed the Coast Guard to say it was under attack from killer whales. And later that same day, a Spanish naval yacht lost part of its rudder after an encounter with the orcas. And there's a video of that incident showing the crew trying to outrun the orca in the boat and the orca following them. Good luck. Yeah. (laughs) In September, a man sailing his boat home to Scotland from Spain, suddenly had the wheel spun out of his hand. A killer whale broke the surface at the side of the boat, and he says that for 45 minutes, the animals bashed and chewed at the rudder, spinning the boat around. So this, I came across this by seeing a a news article about this that that was talking about that this was a group of orcas doing these targeted attacks on boats. And I saw a, a number of articles, a number of headlines, actually. Some of them even saying that these were orchestrated attacks, But no, you say that, they didn't spell it like that. Orchestrated like normal, but without spelling it orchestrated. The state of the press. So, (laughs) what's going on? Because this is is a really interesting new behaviour that's really been happening, is these orca in this particular area off the coast of Spain and Portugal routinely and repeatedly attacking boats for a sustained length of time, and in some cases causing quite a lot of damage. So when scientists first heard about this, they assumed that the interactions were being misrepresented and that the orca weren't really attacking and that the sailors were, you know. Yeah. But as more and more videos began to appear, it was obvious that the orcas were deliberately targeting boats and that the attacks were getting worse as time went on. So the scientists gathered the videos and pictures that they could to see if they could recognise the individual animals based on the unique patterns that orcas have got. And it showed that there were three individuals that were involved in most of the incidents. 
juvenile males that were named in the of course <laughs> that were, of course that were named in the official record as Black Gladys, White Gladys, and Grey Gladys, or henceforth known by us as Gladys the Black, Gladys the White, and Gladys the Grey. <laughs> so these three juveniles don't seem to have any um, family pod that they belong to. They seem Aww. to roam around on their own, which led to reports of like a rogue gang of youths going around terrorizing stuff, yeah. whatever. But then it was revealed that Gladys the White had got quite a severe injury on his head that is a gash that appears to have been caused by a boat, possibly a propeller. <sighs> Vengeance. So then everyone's like revenge attacks. And if any sea animal is going to lead a mutiny against humankind... The deep fights back. It's orca. Yeah. Now... Imagine if they had thumbs. So my general rule is that all birds are better than mammals. Even the worst birds are better <laughs> than the best mammals. The only one that blurs the line is orca. Right. Like, orca are maybe better than some of the worst birds. They're amazing animals. I absolutely, absolutely love orca. And that's the highest praise they can get, is that they're better than some of the worst birds. What are some of the worst birds? Cormorants. Not a fan of cormorants. Really? It's oh, a yeah. seabird that's not waterproof. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I joined it up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has to sit there and dry itself out in like freezing cold January. It's just gone for a swim in January and then it has to stand on a rock with like ice stripping off of its wings trying to keep itself warm. Yeah. Like I say, I like... That's I, a dumb bird. Yeah, it's, they're not great. So yeah, orca, fantastic. So <laughs> was this really abnormal behaviour being caused by the fact that Gladys the White had been hit by a boat and was then leading this charge against boats. Did you mention if Gladys the Black and Gladys the Grey are related to Gladys the White? Do we know it's a DNA or anything? No. So it just says that, okay. that they are just a gang of three juveniles, right. but it doesn't say anything about whether they are, you know, whether they're like brothers. Yeah, yeah. Br brothers in arms, I suppose. The problem is that although it makes a nice narrative that it's a revenge attack because Gladys the White was hit by a boat, it could have been that the gash was caused by the fact they're attacking the boats. So there's no way of knowing whether the behaviour came first and that led to the injury or the injury came first, which led to the attacking of the boats. I think surely the injury came first because they're, <laughs> we know that they're smart animals. Why would they just... Not why would they just attack, but if it was getting injured from the attack, you'd think it'd stop the... Unless they're all like BDSM enthusiasts or whatever, yeah. who knows? It, well, in all likelihood, the scientists are pretty sure that they're just playing. And they think they're doing this because they don't attack the boat anywhere. They always seem to attack the rudder. And the scientists mm. suspect that it's because it's the most mobile part of the boat. And if they hit that, they can sometimes move the entire boat, mm. really. Like, there's videos of a sailing boat turning almost 180 degrees. The orca hits the rudder and it just spins the entire thing round. And the orca might just think, this is great fun. That's hilarious. And also, we don't know whether maybe it's some kind of status symbol. The thing with something as intelligent as an orca is there could be so many reasons why it's doing it but the fact it has the control over this amazing boat it's trophy hunting that's when you talk to people why do they do that it's always like oh, i want to feel powerful i want to shoot them and there's these three young orcas clearly misguided in their youthful years didn't have any good figures you know parent figures exactly lost they've you know discovered that they can get a rush out of completely changing the direction of these giant Imagine yeah. rich people found out they could like punch planes out the sky. <laughs> we that they'd be all over that. Yeah. That's what yeah. these orcas have done. But the story of 
a young orca getting hit by a boat and then seeking vengeance is better. Knock knock. Here's Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the sequel to Free Willy that we all need is when it comes back to exact its revenge on the human population that enslaved it. Those who wronged it. Yeah. And the the interesting thing about orca is that there is no wild orca are famous for there not being a single attack on humans or a single death caused by a wild orca and you've probably seen it they generally do the rounds on social media of people who are out paddle boarding or even swimming and you've got aerial shots or people filming from the shore where orca are coming and checking them out and you know they're literally just on a paddle board or they are just swimming i remember seeing one from new zealand where there's people swimming in a cove and the orca come in and they've never attacked humans in the wild obviously in captivity when they're kept in little glass cages and made to go insane but even then, compared to the amount of interaction with the people and the orca, mm. it's pretty rare, although it has happened on famously on yeah. numerous occasions. So what they are doing is still a bit of a mystery. It is likely to just be playing, but it is a really new bit of behaviour that's, that's only just happened during the summer of 2020. And obviously it's one to keep an eye on because orca learn from each other. And the problem could be is that this becomes a thing among the orca of that area and then it spreads and we end up with orcas just thinking, this is a great thing to do, and it's not, not safe to get in a boat because an orca might just come along and toss your boat around just for jokes. It'd be a very fitting legacy of 2020. The year where we were plunged into total global collapse because we interfered too much with wildlife to then leave it with the, the most narrative. intelligent other animal on the planet realising that it can headbutt boats out of, not quite out of the sea, but, you know, off course. Yeah. I mean, that... If I went into a coma now and you woke me up in three or four years and I was like, what's changed? And you they're like, like, we can't go into the sea. Why not? Yeah. The orcas control the sea. But I would be like, no, from what I remember of going under in 2020, that, that adds up. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what I've missed in four years, but I went under in 2020 and I've come up and we're at war with the sea. So this checks out. So this this story and the whole orca story did remind me of a very a very famous story that, that people might not have heard of that is the extraordinary tale of what went on to inspire Moby Dick, hmm. which is the story of the ship called the Essex, which is an American whaling boat that was sunk in 1820 by a huge bull sperm whale. Now, I read back at the account of, of this happening yeah. from the survivors. Yeah. And it's pretty mental. So whilst they were making repairs to one of the smaller whaling boats, so on the big whaling ship, they've got smaller whaling boats that they go out with a harpoon on and um, and get the whales. So they were repairing one of these smaller whale boats and the crew spotted an abnormally large sperm whale, a bull sperm whale, reportedly about 85 feet, that's 26 metres long. Big boy. Acting strangely. And all it was doing was just lying motionless on the surface of the water facing the ship. (laughs) <laughs> that's not terrifying <laughs> at all yeah. all of a sudden it began to swim directly towards the boat picking up speed by doing little shallow dives and then rammed the essex rocking it from side to side and then dived underneath it surfacing really close on the starboard side so it was then it just sat there again and as its head just lay alongside the bow and the tail by the stern it was motionless and appeared to be stunned having hit the boat the first time. And the crew decided to prepare the harpoon from the deck to try and shoot it from the deck before realising that its tail was only inches from the rudder of the boat. And if they shot it 
and the whale responded by thrashing around. If it hit the rudder, it'd be game over because they're absolutely miles from anywhere. So while they were hesitating about what to do next and whether to shoot this whale, it kind of came to its senses and the whale had recovered, swam several hundred yards forward of the ship and turned round to face the ship's bow. Then there's an account from the first mate, Owen Chase, who wrote this account of what happens next. And this is what Owen Chase said. I turned around and saw... Sorry, him. sorry. Oh, go on. Does Owen Chase speak exactly like you, Jack? What? <laughs> Isn't he a Victorian whaler? Uh, he's, from, he's from Massachusetts, so... I mean, I'll, I'll accept well, Victorian well, okay. whaler. I turned around and saw him about 100 rods. Now, that's about 500 metres away. Directly ahead of us. Coming down with twice his ordinary speed of around 24 knots. That's about 44 kilometres an hour. And it appeared with tenfold fury and vengeance in his aspect. The surf flew in all directions about him with the continual violent thrashing of his tail, his head about half out of the water, and in that way he came upon us and again struck the ship. Now this attack crushed the bow, driving it backwards, and the sperm whale's head is now stuck in the ship. And it takes a moment for it to disengage its head from the kind of shattered timbers. Oh, uh, and then swim off, never to be seen again, leaving the Essex to start going down by its bow. And the story then just gets even more extraordinary. Basically, the, the ship is now going down, but it's going down quite slowly. So they have two days to salvage what supplies they could from the oh, waterlogged wreckage. Like that slowly. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's about 20 sailors that are prepared to set out on the three smaller whale boats with whatever they've been able to salvage and can carry from the Essex as it's going down. Now, they're aware that they really don't have much food and fresh water, but they've been able to salvage charts that told them that they were at least 1,200 miles from the closest known islands. But fearing that those islands would be inhabited by cannibals, they decide to sail twice that distance and make for mainland South America instead. Because wow. they're so convinced that if they end up on these remote islands, cannibals are going to meet them. So where remote, there's got to be what, like the Caribbean? This is in the Pacific. Right, okay. So they're off the western coast of yeah. South America. So they're sailing east to South America. So the food and water, they rationed from the beginning, but most of the food had been contaminated, soaked in seawater. So the men ate this food first, despite it increasing the, their thirst. Uh, and it took them around two weeks to consume the seawater contaminated food. And by this time, the survivors were rinsing their mouths with seawater and drinking their own urine. On December the 20th, exactly a month oh. after the whale attack, and apparently within hours of the crew beginning to die of thirst, the boat lands on the uninhabited Henderson Island, where they find a freshwater spring and gorge themselves on birds and eggs and crabs and whatever they can find, basically, and recover a bit of mm. condition and, mm. and sort themselves out a bit. But after a week of being on the island, they start getting worried that they've essentially exhausted all of the island's food supply and they decide that they're going to leave again. In a week. <laughs> but three men did decide to stay and they go, this is a stupid idea. We're not getting in the boat again. We're going to stay. Those that stayed behind, they live there for a year and then they get rescued. Oh. So they do make it back, which is better than the fate that befalls a lot of them that set off. So 17 men then leave in three boats aiming for Easter Island. But within three days of leaving, they've run out of food. And one by one, they begin to die, with the survivors resorting to eating the people who are dying to stay alive. Eventually, the boats begin to separate. So the three boats that were all together, they start to separate. One disappears, never to be seen again. The other two split up. And it gets really, I mean, it gets pretty brutal. Like, they're now drawing lots to determine who's going to be sacrificed to be eaten. And there's an account of a young man named Owen Coffin, 
who was Captain Pollard's 17-year-old first cousin, who he'd sworn to protect, drew the black spot. And Pollard allegedly offered to protect his cousin, but Coffin is said to have said, no, I got my lot as well as any other. And then lots were drawn again to determine who would be executing him. And then that fell on his young friend, Charles Ramsdale. He drew the black spot for that. He shot Coffin, and then they all ate his body. And then one of the people who ate his body also died. And for the remainder of the journey, there's only two people left on this boat. And they survived by gnawing on the bones of the two people that died. And eventually, remarkably rather, five men from two surviving boats are rescued roughly 90 days after the Essex was hit by a whale. But one of the survivors writes a book about this called In the Heart of the Sea, which then went on to inspire Moby Dick. But they have not that long ago made a film called In the Heart of the Sea. I think it had Chris Hemsworth in it. And I it, was, think it did. came out in like 2016 or something like that. And that is the story of this exact thing. So I think the moral of the story there is don't fuck with nature. <laughs> don't hunt whales. But that's the story of the Essex, which then went on to inspire Moby Dick. This very aberrant sperm whale behavior that crushed a whaling ship and created one of the most well-known stories. I mean, fuck being adrift at sea. Yeah. It's the fact you can't see anything. For so much of the time, there's no yeah. hope. The fact that people colonised the Polynesian islands thousands of years ago or whatever and managed to sail between them oh. is mental. Yeah, bonkers. Yeah. With stars. What? Or even these people that get washed out on, was it the tsunami in Japan or oh whatever? Where there's people basically surviving on the tops of roofs, like, and they're just, and they're out there for months. Which I'd say is the worst bit of a house to be adrift on. Yeah. Like, if I was going to be adrift on a bit of a house, I'd want the kitchen. <laughs> I don't think the amenities <laughs> quite work. <laughs> I don't think the fridge is still working. Well, you know, you've got, the study's going to be pretty useless, isn't it? <laughs> So this is the segment of the podcast where we dive into one specific animal and we see how many Roddy thinks he could fight off in a battle to the death. So today's animal has been suggested by Mag Payne on Instagram, who didn't know that she was putting this animal up to be fought to the death. Mm -hmm. But today's animal is the smew. Now, the smew is a small duck, arguably described as one of the most beautiful birds in the world. I'm now going to show you a picture of it and you can describe it to our dear listeners. Oh, wow. This is a glam rock bird. It's mostly white with uh, black trim to bit. Like, I almost want to say like an outline as if it's been drawn by a cartoonist. It's almost like a, a duck waiting to be coloured in. That's what this... Imagine a colouring book of ducks and this one hasn't been done yet. So there's just like black borders to sections of it. Big kind of panda eye going on. And then the most incredible white and black mohawk. I so mean, this is if David Bowie was a monochrome duck. Often described that appearance that you talked about as a cracked ice and panda appearance is what is often said. Now, that's the male that you've just seen. The female is a bit more plain with a red head. Classic bird. Um, they breed in Scandinavia and the Russian Far East, but can be found uh, in the UK throughout the winter. Now, the key things, the biometrics, because you need to know how big this thing is that you're fighting off. Not particularly big duck only about 40 centimetres long, with a wingspan of about 60 centimetres. So we're talking, it's a pretty small, compact duck, weighs about 500 grams. Weapons, mm -hmm. well, it's a duck. <laughs> not, not great. Bread but crust. <laughs> it is a member of the sawbill family, oh. which includes magansas, 
And sawbills don't dabble around eating plant material like many ducks, but they use their hooked bill with serrated edges to catch fish. They also nest in tree holes, old woodpecker holes, so they've got pretty strong, sharp claws for climbing up. So the question is, Roddy Shaw, how many smews is too many smews? It's a question as old as time. So I'm definitely thinking volume, right? There's there's many a smew in this battle. I had more, not more confidence, but definitely when, when the saw bill entered, that is a... That's a threatening piece of gear yeah. that the smew is rocking. However, 500 grams, I mean, that's a bag of sugar. I think a swift punch oh, dispatches a smew. In top trumps, defense is low yeah. on a smew. They have got very low defensive points. What it boils down to is how many smew can you block until one of them reaches your eyeball with yeah. a saw bill? Other than that, I reckon they can scratch at your leg, they can do this, but really you're going to shrug off a smew. Yeah. <laughs> shrug off a smew. Yeah, the fatal blow is in the eyes, isn't it? Smew to the eye is something which has killed many a man. Uh, but that's going to take out at least one of your hands yeah. covering, your, covering oh, your eyes. You're thinking permanent defense. I was thinking just how many smews can you windmill until one of them statistically oh, one of them gets, gets through. through. <laughs> gets yeah. okay. No, best defense is a good offense. You've got to come okay. in here swinging. So you're, yeah, I'm more defensive. I'm in it for the long haul. 50, final 50. offer. 50 smew. 50 smew, okay. I think for me, it would depend whether it's a male or a female smew. Oh. I wouldn't want to damage a male smew. Oh. So you're just going to punch the women. (laughs) (laughs) On that note. (laughs) All right, Jack. A question here, which actually ties into something I was looking of talking on anyway. But it's coming from Instagram, I believe. If you could swap your eyes with the eyes of any animal... What would you swap them with? So immediately, I'm thinking the classic eyes of a hawk. Mm. And I'm thinking that long-range, high-clarity eyes. There are things like kestrels, which can see amazing UV things. Well, they're the ones that can see from hovering up in the sky, as many of us have seen kestrels, generally by the roadside or over fields or whatever. They're looking down and they can see the ultraviolet reflections of the urine trails that are left by field voles and mice as they're running around in the grass and leaving a urine trail as a bit of a scent mark. But if I had those eyes, I don't think I'd ever use a public toilet ever again. (laughs) So I don't know whether I'd necessarily want to be able to see in the UV. The other thing about bird's eyes is like there are things that happen so quick that are imperceptible to us. So if you move your hand really fast in front of your face, then all your fingers kind of blur together and you can't see it in very high clarity. But birds can process that information a lot quicker. But I think that's probably more towards that's more towards to do with the brain and how fast their neurons are doing with the eyes. We can lump it in with oh, eyes. We'll lump it in with that. So maybe maybe like the really high perceptive abilities of something like a hawk then that can see everything really, really clearly. Am I right that they've got a their lens, the middle of it can is focused much. It's like a binocular. That sounds right. I just think I remember. Yeah, they that can definitely a... see. They definitely see in like much. They can see further in a lot more detail than we can. That's not surprising for a bird of prey, right? But I just mean in terms of how it's structured. I remember from a documentary I saw. I think when I was younger, and the way it posited it, and maybe it's been superseded or whatever, is that a bird of prey's eye. If you imagine the outer ring yeah. of the vision is normal distance and then like in the middle there's a zoomed in bit that is like double oh wow so whatever that's right in the middle 
is like really far and then around it is kind of what's happening so the lens has got like two focal lengths oh in this scenario do you think you can so if i chose the eyes of a wildebeest or a deer mm. are they going to be on the side of my head or do they have to go where my eyes <laughs> where they go my eyes fit i think it depends if you want that well, i was thinking they go where your eyes go because if Me you too. had eyes on the side of your head, God bless you. But <laughs> I'm just thinking. Well, I'm just thinking. Like, how else do animals see differently to us? Well, we have our eyes on the front of our head because we're predators and we need it for depth perception and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Prey animals have it on the side of their head because they're looking out for predators. So if I could have that, I mean, not that I need to look out for predators, <laughs> but to have that almost 360 vision. Oh, owl eyes to see at night. That could be useful. Yeah, I had cat eyes. Yeah. For that, they've got incredibly good night vision. Night vision, I think, is actually the sensible way to go. Yeah. I briefly flirted with chameleon eyes. Just so you could move them independently. And then I thought about what that might actually entail, and I was like, that's... What it would look like is one thing. It's horrific. Whether it's not... <laughs> and monstrous. You, you could never have glasses. You could only ever have single monocles, because they'd have to strap on each individual eye. Is it ever useful to look in two directions at the same time no i mean i've met some people who <laughs> <laughs> no chameleon's a good shout but not really for any practical reason but just because as an animal eye that's pretty extraordinary and i'd love to know how they actually piece that image together i'd love to know what I've that looks like asked you know at uni lecturers and no one's been able to really give me anything. i mean i guess it goes together like we think it goes together in that if you had two cameras and then you just moved one 90 degrees away and you know plugged in it'd look like that but i mean god that would be a i once read a book ages ago about apache helicopter pilots mm. and they wear this helmet that has this little well, it's like a screen that comes over their eye that gives them information or whatever and the author of this book was an apache pilot and he said that you get intense headaches when you first start using it because you're trying to focus on the information that's on this screen saying covering your right eye but also scanning you know, because you're flying a helicopter mm. with your left eye. And he said that after a time, you can move your eyes independently. And he said he was able to read two books at once because one, because one eye was trained in one spot and he could move the other one around. That is bonkers. I remember I mean... that sticking in my head vividly, that line that he, that he sat and read two books at one time. God, I never knew that at all. So um... that's probably the closest we can get to chameleon vision. Is there any benefit to any kind of aquatic eye? Well, I was thinking... Another one I went straight to was octopus, but they're so much like our eyes. Mm. Although octopuses actually are slightly better than our eyes because we have a blind spot that we don't know about because we've, we have we mentally... Process it proce out. Yeah, get rid of it. But there is a blind spot, apparently right in the middle of our eye, where the optic nerve that attacks to our retina creates this blind spot, but we don't see it because our brain just makes us not see it because we get used to it. Whereas octopuses, their eye is a lot better evolved than ours. And although it's evolved completely independently but has come to a very similar structure. They don't have that blind spot. But it's pretty similar to us, so I don't know whether I'd go for an octopus eye. One thing I heard or looked at at uni was like archer fish, which shoot out of the water. Obviously the water, if you're at whatever, the zoo or a swimming pool and you put your, your bath, you put your hand in, it refracts and it bends the image. But they can account shoot through and account for that, which mm. there's got to be something going on there. But I don't know when I'd need that. Do you play like underwater netball? Is that a thing? No, but if I woke up with eyes that suited to... You'd find a team. I'd find a team, <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, well, looks like we're taking gold, boys. I'm just trying to think if there's any other... So what other animals? So we've got mammals. Going into compound invertebrate eyes. Oh, inver dragonfly eyes. Yeah? 
I just think they look mint. Oh, yeah. But on a dragonfly, they do. <laughs> yeah. That, that's very, like, the fly stuff, isn't it? Yeah, if, we're going real Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Fly, <laughs> fly eyes, though. What do they see? Well, they process the world incredibly fast. Because when we see a fly and they move, they do just seem to jit from place to yeah. place. To Whereas place. to another fly, it's still moving fast. When a fly's wings are buzzing, we can't see the wing going up and down. We just see a blur. But to another fly, it can see that wing going up and down because it can process that information so quickly. Maybe fly eyes. But then all you're doing is seeing the world in greater clarity. But could you binge like all of Netflix in an hour if you were a fly? <laughs> you could. You could see. Yeah, I guess you'd see it, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't hear it. <laughs> Great. Done. Game of Thrones. Well, you did actually touch on something which I was going to bring up in this, which is UV. So as you mentioned, some animals can pick up UV. And of course, the birds can see it. And we'll come back to that. But they've recently found out, as with a lot of things in science, this was a complete and total accident when someone just went, what happens if I? Excellent. And it turns out the best kind of science. This is what happens if. There's a professor over in America and he just went out to his garden one night to see what would happen if he shone a UV light around. Mm -hmm. What might that pick up? And you may be familiar with things like scorpions glow in the dark under UV light. Flying squirrels was what he picked up. What? And not only did they glow in the dark, they glue bubblegum pink. No. Under a UV light. Shining it around, he noticed pink things happening. What? And what it was, and I will show you the picture now... Look at that. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is actually the the white underbelly. The bit I picked up was the cheek. So it's it's probably going to be the white. So it's usually the white of an animal that fluoresces. It's fluorescing pink on the underside of that flying squirrel. Now, he found this in the flying squirrels and was obviously shocked. Went on to then check the other two species of flying squirrel in America. There's three. Got in touch with his colleagues, checked out some museums. You're just ringing up the colleagues and go, I need you to just shine a UV light on a flying squirrel. Why? I just don't ask. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you... <laughs> Do you have a flying squirrel? Yes. Do you have a UV light? Yes. Do you have 20 minutes? Yes. Just do it. Tell me what you see. Oh, my God, it's pink. It works. <laughs> so he shone the light on the squirrel in his garden, shines up pink. Yeah. Checks with his mates. Let's look at all three. They're squirrels. All pink. three of them turn up pink. Wow. Now, they don't know why this is happening. One of the things they think is because owls, like you mentioned, can pick up UV. Right. And apparently some owls fluoresce pink. There's a lot going on here. (laughs) Under UV light. Actually, so I have... I did a a stint where I was a bird ringer, so catching and tagging um, migratory birds with little rings on their legs in Canada. Yep. And I was there for three months a bird observatory in Ontario called Long Point Bird Observatory. And we caught owls. Mm-hmm. We caught little tiny solar owls. And to age them, what you could do, and it's just coming back to me now, is you could extend their wing and you would hold them under a UV light. Yep. And they would glow. Yeah. I don't, I don't know whether it was pink. It was like a... They would, but no, I think it was pink. And their feathers, depending on the age of their feathers, depending on how brightly they glowed and you could see basically the generations of the feathers within the wing under uv light and that let you work out how old they were so yeah so what they think this could be is ultraviolet camouflage by the squirrels so that under night conditions they would maybe not completely but look a bit more like an owl 
What? Than if they didn't fluoresce pink. Because we've got to remember that even though it's at night, to the owl, it can see everything. Yeah. So the, the, the owl is seeing the squirrel regardless of whether it's, you know, whether it's pink or not, really. Because the owl can see very, very well. So that, that white is probably going to show up. That white on the underbelly that we see would probably show up just as well to a owl as any pink. This is where it gets really funky in trying to wrap our brains around how all this works. Yeah. So the animal in this case, the flying squirrel, is fluorescing. In the case of fluorescing, light energy hits that molecule. It excites the electrons in the molecule hmm. as they basically charge up with energy. And as they release that energy, they emit the light that we see. Fluorescing is reflecting light, but at a different wavelength that it was shone on Basically, yeah. It's taking in light at one level and putting it out at another. Yeah. That being the case, it gets really funky in trying to wrap our head around it. Because as best as I can work out, we have discovered fluorescence in animals, but we don't have any way of truly comprehending what that looks like. There's a level of UV light at nighttime all the time. UV radiation is just in the air, for want of another thing, which is interacting with the animals. What happens when we do it is we basically shine concentrated UV light onto it, and it sends it into overdrive, in a sense, right. and re-emits it at a level that we can see. So, so going back to the squirrels, the picture we've just looked at there, where they're, they're really pink underneath... That's not necessarily what the squirrels look like to each other or to the owls. Yeah, that's what they look like when we dial the UV right up. So that our poor UV sensing eyes. But this is, we're not picking up the UV light. We're picking up what's emitted after the UV light. Mm. In no circumstances are we seeing the UV light. Mm. But what it shows us is that there are compounds there interacting with UV light. And there can be all, it could just be a complete fluke. But when you go down and start looking at birds who we know for sure can pick up UV light because they've got a different cone in their eye specifically for the UV spectrum, yeah. then it's really a case of something's happening there because yeah. they're clearly seeing it in some way. But when it becomes what the what are they seeing, we have no real way of comprehending that. Yeah. We can just pull things off a shelf in a museum, point concentrated UV light at it and tick a box saying, yep, something's happening. Yeah. But we can't actually comprehend or work out or see or visualize anything it's incredible to think about that there is another way of seeing the world that is hiding in plain sight yeah and for something to us like blue tits which to humans they look very similar like the males and females look very similar but it's highly likely that a blue tit looking at another blue tit is seeing some you know the plumages of the male could be completely different to the female or a lot brighter or a lot more striking and well, like you've said, it's just a whole way of seeing the world that we are not able to. Yeah. And even when we get an insight into it, it's not reflective of what it actually looks like to them. But it's a definite kind of with the birds that it's something going on, probably sexual selection in some way, mm. because things like the puffin's bill, which is very colourful to our eyes, but you shine a UV light on it and some of those stripes fluoresce. Yeah. So they're definitely interacting with the UV. It's a definite sexual selection thing going on. The squirrel becomes the tenuous link to... But it's, it's hard to say tenuous one way or the other because we've got no way of really understanding or seeing this. Could it be, and in general, things always happen for a reason in evolution, but could it be, you know when you were younger and you used to have those jogging bottoms and when you went under certain lights or whatever at kids' attractions, they'd glow? Yeah. I don't know whether they were necessarily meant to do that, but it's just a byproduct of what they're made out yeah. of. Could that be a similar thing with the squirrels? It's actually just a bit of a, yep. a yep. byproduct and that not has, intentional. Yep. 
and it hasn't been discounted. I think the sticking point is the fact that they seem to fluoresce the same colour as owls. If yeah. they just fluoresced a weird colour, it'd be like, whatever. But you've got a nocturnal prey yeah. shining... Mirroring the same The colour. same thing as its predator, yeah. which cool. is the weird bit. So then, in all of this fluorescence, luminescence thing, mammals are, as with quite a lot of stuff, really... Well, no, because the rest of things probably look at it like, oh, intelligence, mammals, tick. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> Warm blood, mammals, tick. <laughs> Opposable thumbs, mammals, tick. Yeah. And then we get annoyed because we're like, we want to glow. Yeah. And there's all these things at the bottom of the sea that are just teeth with an asshole going, give us something. <laughs> we don't even get to see sunlight. And we're getting annoyed that we don't glow. So the guy was like, okay, well, mammals have been shortchanged in this. What else might glow, mammal-wise? And so the question that popped into his head is what is the furthest removed thing from a flying squirrel? And he landed on platypus. Yeah. I'd argue they're a mammal, a walrus. Yeah. If I was thinking what's furthest from a flying squirrel. But I think I'd probably say that a platypus is you could choose any mammal and the platypus is a good argument for being the furthest <laughs> away yeah. from whatever animal you chose. Yeah. <laughs> so evolutionary relationship freak in yeah. that it's furthest away from everything yeah. simultaneously. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And so he went down to his museum, pulled out a platypus, shone a UV light on it, worked. So what, what colour did the platypus glow? The platypus, they've got it coming up as two colours. I think it's the classic bluey-greeny, mm -hmm. that kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, your trainers in the nightclub thing. Yeah. Um, in the picture, they've then got it under another filter. I'm not going to pretend I know what they've done there. Yeah, They've put it under does a it, filter. Does it look yellow? No, it's got dog eyes and the tongue <laughs> coming out. <Is> that... <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't even look yellow. It, it's slightly less bluey green. Okay. This potentially opens up another <clears throat> mammalology... So I don't know if that's a word. It is now. Gold rush. A mammal biology science gold rush where everybody goes <laughs> out and shines UV lights at every single mammal they can find yeah. to describe something brand new to science. Like what happens if you shine um, something at like a giraffe? Because the potential there is that these animals have had UV properties the whole time, but nobody's bothered to shine a light on it. It's quite a profoundly massive question. I mean, I don't even know how we found out that birds... Mm. I mean, I guess I wanted to cut open their eye, maybe, and work out... Yeah, it I probably guess. Because otherwise it is just grab a UV torch and start pointing it at things and see what happens is yeah. the approach to this, because it's this... But genuinely, though, like, how much is a UV torch? Six, seven quid? Yeah. If he found out something by going in his garden, I'm, yeah. I'm genuinely thinking, just go out and shine it. Whether it's mammals or insects or whatever. Yeah. That must be amazing. It's very cool. <laughs> <laughs>